we do want to come together and take a look at chapter 20 tonight. Now, I find chapter 20 fascinating because previously, uh, in our previous time together, we saw First uh, Kings chapters 18 and 19, this very dramatic confrontation with the prophet Elijah against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And, you know, Elijah shone very brightly in the last chapter. And at the end of chapter 19, we have Elijah finding uh, Elisha, his, you know, sort of associate prophet, his young prophet that he would mentor up and throw his mantle over, so to speak. And so we're left with this great picture of these two outstanding figures of the Old Testament side by side at the end of chapter 19. And as we come to chapter 20, we're excited and we're just, okay, great, tell us what's going to happen with Elijah and Elisha in uh, 1 Kings chapter 20. And the answer to that is nothing. We don't find anything from these two prophets here. Instead, we find some anonymous prophets at work here in this important chapter. And I think it's there to show us something. Uh, First of all, to, to remind us that God works through anonymous people just as much as he does through big names. But also to remind us of the idea that God comforted Elijah when Elijah thought he was all alone with the idea that there were 7,000 men in Israel who had not bowed their knee or kissed the idol of Baal. And he meant that to be an encouragement to him. Well, I think chapter 20 is in this arrangement and, and with this idea, partially the Holy Spirit has given it to us here, to emphasize to us that God used some of those unnamed 7,000 as well. He doesn't just use the big names like Elisha and Elisha. So let's jump right into it here. Chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Now, Ben Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him, with horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, and I and all that I have are yours. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben Hadad, saying, Indeed I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants. And it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put it in their hands and take it. Well, this was a very formidable attack from Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, who gathered his mighty army against the kingdom of Israel, which was just to the south of the kingdom of Syria. Just as today, you can go there, and the the, uh, nation of Syria is just to the north of the nation of Israel. Anyway, the Syrian king comes against the northern kingdom of Israel, and they came with a very strong military attack. And I find it interesting that You know, generally speaking, Israel was strong militarily and economically during the reign of Ahab, but they weren't strong enough to repel this attack. And it was a great force that came, and he could really dictate the terms to King Ahab and say, I'm going to take whatever I want from your palace and from your kingdom. Of course, we're sort of discouraged to see the response of Ahab in these verses. Didn't you see it there in verse 4? where he says, My Lord, O King, are just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. You know, this response to Ben-Hadad from Ahab 
sort of fits the general personality profile we have of King Ahab. He was a man concerned with the luxuries and the comforts of living. And so he really didn't have the, the character to stand in the face of a great attack from a man like Ben-Hadad. Ahab surrendered unconditionally to Ben-Hadad of Syria. Whatever you want, you come and take. And he just believed that he was in no place to put up a fight or a resistance against the Syrian king. I wonder if some of it didn't have to do with the three-and-a-half-year drought and famine that the kingdom of Israel just got finished with experiencing, you know, that would leave the nation at a pretty low point economically and militarily after those three-and-a-half years. In any regard, at the end of this section, at the end of verse 6, we see how Ben-Hadad threatens and says, my servants are going to come and search your house and the houses of all your servants, and they're just going to come and take everything. He, he agrees to terms, and then he sees that he has the power, so he makes the uh, the deal even better in his favor, Ben-Hadad does, in regard to Ahab. So look at the advice Ahab's going to get starting now at verse 7. So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king... All that you have sent for your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Well, it's sort of interesting. You wonder why uh, King Ahab did not seek the counsel of his uh, elders and such before he made that first surrender to Ben-Hadad. It didn't seem like he asked him for the advice then. Only when the second demand came, the second demand, which was much stronger than the first demand, um, But now uh, he says, well, uh, don't listen and consent. That was the advice of the elders of Israel to King Ahab. They rightly saw that if you surrender to Ben-Hadad in this way, if you tell him, you come into our houses and anything you see, by the way, including our wives and children, anything you see you take, that's just total surrender of your kingdom to the Syrian king. You, You can buy them off, but don't unconditionally surrender to them. Therefore, Ahab took the advice of his elders, and he told Ben-Ahab that I will do most of what you've requested, but not all. Now, how do you think that usually works in the world of the way that kings and tyrants and such are? You know, when, when somebody's a tyrant like this, if you refuse them on one point, they feel like you've refused them on all points. Do you think Ben-Hadad is going to take this and say, well, you know, he's giving us most of what we wanted. It sounds very reasonable to us. Why don't we just take what he's offered? No, that's not the way a man like Ben-Hadad reacts. He's offended because he knows you're not giving me everything that I've asked for. So now, verse 10. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if there's enough dust of Samaria for a handful of each of the people who follow me. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let the one who puts on his armor, excuse me, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message, he and his kings were drinking at the command post that he said to his servants, Get ready! And they got ready to attack the city. So uh, Ben-Hadad swears this oath of vengeance against Israel and against King Ahab, and when Ahab hears about this, I love the phrase that Ahab uses here. I just This phrase just sort of sticks in my mind as a biblical phrase. Let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. 
You know, that's uncharacteristically bold speech from Ahab. Usually don't see Ahab with such backbone to say such a thing. But really, it's a wonderful piece of wisdom. The idea is simply, you should do your boasting after the battle. Don't do your boasting before the battle. Now, do your boasting after you've won the game, not before you play. Let not him who puts his armor on boast the same way that the man who takes it off successfully after the battle. So they got ready to attack the city. You know a battle's coming between the kingdom of Syria and the city of Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom. Now, verse 13. Suddenly, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. First of all, we just have to pause at verse 13 and ask, who is this prophet? Well, the answer is what? We don't know who this prophet was. He's absolutely unnamed. I find it very interesting. A couple commentators that I read, they can't resist sticking Elijah or Elisha in here somewhere. One commentator, a guy I like, Adam Clark, he says, I think this is Elijah in disguise speaking to King Ahab. Well, there's absolutely no reason for saying that. It says he feels like he has to find Elijah in this chapter somewhere, but he isn't in here. This was an unnamed prophet, one of the 7,000 of Israel who were faithful to Yahweh when it seemed like the whole nation was given over to Baal worship. And the, the promise here in verse 13 is really more important than the identity of the prophet. The promise is, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. What a generous promise of God towards Ahab in Israel. Now let's remember, was this godly King Ahab who was seeking the Lord and wanted the best for God and his people? Not at all. This was idolatrous King Ahab. This was King Ahab who officially sponsored Baal and Ashtoreth worship. This was King Ahab who supported his wife's murderous persecution of the people of God. This was wicked King Ahab, and yet God makes this promise of delivery. Even though they had a hardened idolatry and a rejection of God, and even though they deserved divine abandonment, God had every right to just leave them alone and let them perish without his help. But God's rich in mercy. And he showed that mercy to Ahab and Israel. I'm just struck by this. God had absolutely no obligation to help them in this situation. If he gave them what they deserved, he would just let them get slaughtered by the Syrians. But God is greater than that. I find a small irony in this statement, too. Did you see what it says there in verse 13? And you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't just two chapters ago, God proved to Ahab and everybody that he was the Lord by a little display of power on Mount Carmel? Apparently, by this time, Ahab has already forgotten. Again and again and again, God has to show the Ahabs of the world, and I suppose sometimes us as well, that he is the Lord. Uh, apparently, Ahab was not yet completely convinced, and very graciously, God would give him even more evidence. And so now, verse 14, look at Ahab's great response of faith and affirmation to the Lord. Verse 14, so Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. Then he said, well, who will set the battle in order? And he answered, you. Then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232. After them, he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. You know, 
God promises this great victory, and Ahab looks around at his army, which, by the way, had probably been greatly weakened by three and a half years of famine and drought. He looks around at his army and he goes, if you, who are you going to deliver? I don't think you're going to deliver me through this army. You know, what, what army are you going to bring to help deliver me, God? He, he looked around at his army and his military leaders, and he thought, how can God bring victory from these people? And, and so he says, how are you going to do it? And God said, I'm going to do it through these men. And he said, well, well, how more are you going to do it? And God told Ahab, I'm going to do it through you. Isn't that amazing? I think that's wonderful. Ahab was in one of these situations where he knew that God wanted to do a work, and he asked the logical question, well, God, who are you going to do this work through? And God basically said, I'm going to do it through you and through the people that you have with you right now. Through the captains of the army that you have right now. You see, in Ahab's thinking, help had to come from the outside, right? If God was going to win a dramatic victory, well, he had to send another army. I don't know, the army of Judah, the army of Egypt, the army of somebody. But, but not the people I have right here, not me. That's what Ahab's thinking. Now, this is an important spiritual principle. When a work for God is to be done, we often ask Ahab's same question. We want to say, by whom? Who's going to do this, Lord? And when many Christian leaders ask this question, they expect that God will answer it by bringing somebody new to them. You know, a leader or, or, or a champion who can do the work or at least help with it. But I'll tell you God's normal way of working. God's normal way of working is to use the people that that Christian leader already has. Even if they seem like a very unlikely army. You know, I think of it. I think of the, just the hypothetical guy who's pastoring a small congregation, you know, and he, oh, Lord, we need help. We need workers. You know, we need leaders. God, we need leaders for this work. And, and, and you know, he feels, God, yes, I'm going to raise up great leaders for the work here. And God says, and the man says to God, well, where are you going to send them? God says, by the people that you have right here. And the man blinks, Lord, have you seen the group that you've given me here? They're not exactly leadership potential, God. Um, you know, I mean, it, it looks like a bunch of misfits or people who are too busy or people are this. Or people, you know, God's way of saying is you pour into these people that you have. Don't don't wait for the Lone Ranger to come in on a white horse from the outside. Now, listen, maybe God will send the Lone Ranger. Maybe God will send somebody from the outside. But that should not be your concern. You look to raise up leaders from the group God has given you. Think that God is going to use the people that you have right here in front of you. And that's what God told Ahab he was going to do. You see, God would do this work against Syria and Ben-Hadad with an army of only 7,000. And now the work was going to get underway. So look here in verse 16. So they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. The young leaders of the provinces went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol, and they told him, saying, Men are coming out of Samaria. So he said, If they've come out for peace, take them alive. And if they've come out for war, take them alive. Now, just stop right there. See, see what's happening so far here? So far, Ahab says, Okay, God, you say you're going to win this victory through the, the, the captains of the army that you've given me? All right, I'm going to send them out. I'm going to just put them on horses and send them towards the, the Syrian camp. Who knows what's going to happen? And so when they go, meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and all his kings, what are they doing? They're getting drunk. The same sinful heart that made Ben-Hadad attack Israel also made him a drunk. 
If you want to look for an underlying reason for the defeat of Ben Hada, because I don't mean to spoil the story for anybody, but this guy loses. If you want to look for the reason for it, it's simply because his weak moral character. Anyway, he's getting drunk with all of his men. They, they, they see this party of captains coming out, you know, here to approach the army. They call, hey, there's people coming from the city of Israelites are coming to us from the city of Samaria. And what does Ben Hadad see? Did you see it there? What, what he said in verse uh, 18? If they've come out for peace, take them alive. And if they've come out for a war, take them alive. Now, can I, does that make sense to you? Does it sound like it's coming from the mouth of a drunk man? I think he's giving confused orders because he's he's just wasted. You know, he he's not thinking clearly. Yeah, if they come out for war, t- take them alive. And if they come out for peace, take them alive. Or you know what? He's just he's just not thinking. And so he probably spoke in this drunk confusion, and he gave foolish orders to his soldiers. And his soldiers blink, and they don't know what to do. You know, everybody's confused. Look what happens here, verse nineteen. Then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them, and each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and the chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go, strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do, for in the spring of the year the king of Syria will come up against you. So it's a great battle strategy. You know, all Ahab knew was that God said he's going to win a victory through these men. So he said, well, I don't, let's send these men towards the Syrian camp. And because of the drunkenness of Ben-Hadad, and because of the blessing of God, and because of the moral confusion in the Syrian camp, there was a great victory and the Syrian army was routed and they went away. But God didn't want Ahab to celebrate too great because the Syrian army was going to come back. This nameless prophet here, verse 22, right? Not Elijah, not Elijah. Mr. Nameless Prophet comes again, advises Ahab, and he says, they are going to come back. Now, I want you to notice something. They weren't really prepared for the Syrians when God gave them this great victory that we just read about, right? But yet, God wanted them to prepare for an attack that was to come next year. It's almost as if God is telling Ahab, listen, don't rely on these miracles. Don't think that you can make no preparation you don't have to worry about Ben Haydad attacking. You just, you know, live your life carelessly. And then when the crisis comes, says, Oh, Lord, send a miracle. No, why don't you start preparing now? Because Ben Haydad is going to come back with an army again next year. Well, that's what happened here. Verse 23. Uh, then the servants of the king of Syria told him, This is great. Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, Surely we will be stronger than they. So do this thing. Dismiss the kings, each from their position, and put the captains in their places. And you shall muster an, arm, muster an army like an army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. Now, there's two levels going on here. First of all, there's a military analysis level. And on the military analysis, they say, listen, um, Ben-Hadad, the strength of our army is in horses and in chariots, and those operate best on a flat, uh, you know, fighting surface. And, and so we shouldn't fight in the hills 
which work more to the military advantage of the Israelites. So next time, let's provoke the battle so it's in a situation that's better for us militarily. But that wasn't the primary idea there, was it? The primary idea was a spiritual one, wasn't it? What did he say? It's very interesting there in verse 23. Their God is the God of the hills. Now, the God of the hills can't work so good in the valley. So if we do the the battle in the valley, we'll come out ahead. The idea of the localized deity was very prominent in the ancient world. They felt that particular gods had authority over particular areas. And because the recent victory that was won by Israel against Syria was won on hilly terrain, the servants of the king of Syria believed that the God of Israel was a localized deity with power over the hills, but not the plains, not the valleys. I want you to notice something here. They're making a critical mistake, aren't they? They're thinking that the king of Israel is just like their pathetic little molded gods that they make. You know, the gods that they worshipped were these localized deities. Oh, this god's effective here, and that god's effective there, and this god is effective in another place. They don't understand that God is greater than that. But it's easy for us to stand back and criticize them and think of how dumb they are. But I'll tell you this, we make the same mistake today. Many people today think that God is a god of the hills, but not of the plains. They think that God is a God of the past, but not of the present. They think that God has a few special favorites, but he he really doesn't treat all his people the same. They think that God is the God of one kind of trial or suffering, but not a trial of another kind. Listen, I think that Satan understands this thinking that we have so easily. He thinks that we believe God can work more easily in one situation than in another. It's kind of hard for me to explain this, but I think you're catching on to the idea. I mean, I think, for example, of the way that people think. They think, you know, it would be better for the church if the church were persecuted. You know, look at how the church thrives in times of persecution, and it would be better. The work of God could go further if the church was persecuted. I just want to say... Isn't that right there, thinking that God is the God of the hills, but not of the valleys? That God can, can bless and, and protect his church in a time of persecution, but God is somehow helpless to do it for his church in a time of prosperity. You know, God is the God of the hills, but not of the valleys. And you think of this, God can work in one place, but, but he can't work in another place. How often have we heard that kind of thinking? Especially here when people start getting out and doing ministry in other places and in difficult places around the world. They say, well, you know, this is such a tough place where I'm at. And I agree that there are some places where ministry definitely seems tougher than others. But far be it from us to drift off in this area where you think God is the God of uh, of America, but but, but not of the third world. Uh, He's the God of, uh, of Western Europe. But, but he's not the God of the Islamic world. That, that God is God in one place, but he's not the God of the other place. We, we have to get this thinking that God is a localized deity out of our head. That's thinking like the servants of the king of Syria, not the servants of the living God. Matter of fact, they felt very bold about this. They said, then we will fight them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they They believed it, and they said, let's act upon this belief. So what happens here? Verse 26. So it was, 
in the spring of the year, that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, like the Syrians filled the countryside. Isn't that a great description of this? You see this massive, massive Syrian army filling hill after hill after hill. You look at the you look at the Israelite army. It looks like two little flocks of goats on the hillside. Hmm. They look like lambs to the slaughter, don't they? It doesn't look good for Israel. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, "By the way, Elijah, Elisha, no, another anonymous man of God." A man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys, therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, I want you to notice this. When Ben-Hadad came back again to avenge the loss that he had the year before, he came back with an overwhelming force. He didn't want to risk another humiliation. And it also makes you wonder if Ben-Hadad really took this business of gods of hills and valleys very seriously. Because he said, you know, our God may be the God of the valleys, but we're going to bring an awfully big army with us also. But at least some of the Syrians really believe this. That the Lord is the God of the hills, he's not the God of the valleys. And God says that because of this, I'm going to deliver all this great multitude into the hands of the Israelites who are vastly outnumbered. Now I want you to notice something here. God took the bad theology of the Syrians as a personal insult. We don't often think about that, do we? That bad theology insults God. We often, as a matter of fact, think just the opposite. We almost think, well, you know, look, God's a big God, and he doesn't really care what people think about him. What, you think God's like on some insecurity trip, and you know, he's worried about what people think about him? No, no, that's not the, the, the matter at all. Our God is a great God, and when lies are told about him, it bothers him. When we hold and choose to hold in our mind wrong beliefs about God, it insults him. He, he has every reason to believe that you don't understand him, you don't care to understand him. It's just like this. You, you, you wonder how God would say it in our mind. God would say, you, you think I'm a God of grace, but not of righteousness, instead of the hills and the valleys thing. You, you think I'm a God of, of a comfort, but not of power. Our wrong understanding of God can be a grave insult of him. It, it can take away from his glory and his majesty, and it never adds to it. God resented their blasphemy, and he was determined to punish it. He was going to show them, my power is everywhere. Don't you call me a god of the hills. I'm going to show you that my power is present in the valleys as well. So, I hope Ahab was feeling better about this with his little two flocks of goats there on the hillside, so to speak, but a message from the prophet of God. Now, let me remind you of something before we look at verse 29. D do you think that for some reason there had been great spiritual revival in the life of Ahab? No. Again, we always want to think that if God saves, if God blesses, 
it's because, you know, some leader is so spiritual, and that's why God is doing it. Personally, leaders love to cultivate that idea, you know, that, you know, if God's really blessing, it's because the, the leader is so spiritual. I want you to think that, you know, of anything I'm associated with, that if God's blessing it, it's, well, of course, it's because I'm so spiritual, and isn't that why God blesses it? But, you know, it's crazy, isn't it? God's blessing or or the perceived lack of blessing may have nothing to do with the leader. Nothing. You, you, you can't make rules about such things. You can't say, well, all the good ones are blessed and all the bad ones are cursed, or, or, or the other way around. You, you can make no laws about this. In these things, many times the ways of God are past finding out. Some, some of the most godly pastors I know, I can think of some right now, I can think through the business cards in my mind right now, some incredibly godly pastors, man, they just struggle. And I don't know why. I wish I had their character. I wish I had their integrity. I wish I had their godliness. And yet I see, and that, man, their ministry is just a struggle. And then I, I know other pastors who seem to have great success, one field or another, and I look and I just say, man, you know, what's going on with that? Lord, how are you blessing that? But I want you to know, this is carnal thinking. When we think, well, you know, God's blessing all the good boys and he's penalizing all the bad boys. You can't figure it out that way. You just cannot figure it out that way. And so we see God showing great mercy and blessing to Ahab, who was an unrighteous, ungodly man, but he's doing it for his name's sake and for his people's sake. He's not doing it for Ahab's sake, but for his name's sake and for his people's sake. All right, now verse 29. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was on the seventh day that the battle was joined, and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek, into the city. Then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and went to the city into an inner chamber. I think this is wonderful because this was clearly a miracle, yet it was a miracle working through the existing Israeli army, which was like a flock of goats compared to the size of the Syrian army. God wanted to show that as unlikely as it seemed, he could work through this outwardly weak and ineffective instrument. But then God threw in a little bit of the supernatural after that. After the great victory on the battlefield, God moved another extraordinary ways, like pushing over that wall on the 27,000 Syrians that had escaped to Aphek. And he, he really wanted to show, look, I'm not just going to let you think that Israel has beat you. I have beat you as well. And so there was a tremendous, tremendous victory for Israel. Again, not just in the hills, but in the valleys as well. Verse 31 then his servant said to him, Look, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. These are the advisors and the assistants to Ben-Hadad. We've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they wore sackcloth around their waists and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Is he alive? He is still my brother. Now the men were watching closely to see whether a sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at his word and said, Your brother Ben-Hadad. So he said, Go, bring him. 
then Ben Hadad came out to him, and he had come up to, and he had come, he had him come up into the chariot. So Ben Hadad said to him, "The cities which my father took from your father, I will restore, and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria." Then Ahab said, "I will send you away with this treaty." So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. Isn't it fascinating? Not long before this, Ben Hadad spoke severe threats against Ahab and all the kingdom of Israel. Remember that whole, you know, God do so to me and more if my servants can each get a handful of dust from the city of Samaria and all that kind of business. Now he humbled himself as much as he could to win mercy and favor from the unexpectedly triumphant king of Israel. By the way, I don't want to over-spiritualize this too much. But I think it's a wonderful thing for sinners to come to God, the king, with the same manner as Ben-Hadad came to Ahab. Come with sincerity, come with humility, come with surrender, come with earnestness, and come close, I love this, watching to see whether any sign of mercy would come to them. I love that. The idea of a sinner coming to God, humbly surrendered, and then just looking to God, are you going to show me any sign of mercy? Do you have a sign of mercy for me? And of course, God will show this kind of mercy. But unfortunately, Ahab should not have shown mercy to the king of Syria. That's not what God wanted him to do. Wanted him to do, I should say. You see, Ahab felt a kinship towards this pagan king with these very pagan ideas of God. Perhaps Ahab wanted Ben-Hadad in Syria's friendship and protection against other political uh, alliances that were building around the world. If that's the case, he was looking for friends in the wrong places, and he had no business making the treaty that's described there in verses 33 and 34. The victory was the Lord's. The victory didn't belong to Ahab. Ahab is negotiating away the Lord's victory. And I don't think the Lord's going to be happy with that. So here, he's doing what he should not do. But now we come here to verse 35 and see our next anonymous prophet going to speak here to Ahab. Look at it here. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, Strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. Stop. you got to put a little pause right here. Some things in the Bible are just kind of weird. Okay, we admit that. This is one of those just kind of weird passages. We're introduced to a prophet who goes up to, you can just imagine, knocking on the door. Hello, you know, hi. Um, I suppose maybe this other guy is another one of the sons of the prophets. We don't know for certain, but maybe it's sort of implied in the text. Hi, um, can you do me a favor? Can you, can you strike me, please? No, I'm not going to do that. Now, I want you to notice again, This is another anonymous prophet, another anonymous man of God who's here busy. Do you think God is trying to get a message through to us here? Elijah, Elisha were not alone. God had many others, and God would work through many others. We have this tendency, don't we? We look at ourselves, we look at the people around us in our circle, and we think, well, that's where God's working, nowhere else. No, listen, God has many people who can do many great works beyond our own vision, and we should be thankful for it. But anyway, back to this weird prophet. Strike me, please, he says. 
Now, we're assuming, and I think we have reason to assume this, that this was directed by God. You see, this prophet that's mentioned here in verse 35, he needed an injury to show to King Ahab. And I guess it's kind of hard to hit yourself hard enough to make an injury. So he came over and said, strike me, please. What happened when his neighbor refused? Verse 36. All right, it's weird. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely, as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. Wow! All right, if you want me to figure all this out for you, I can't. All right? All I can tell you is that presumably... This neighbor was not just another man in the kingdom of Israel. The implication is that he was a fellow member of the sons of the prophets and that he should have been sensitive to what God was doing and maybe that the prophet prevailed upon him even more than what's in the text. He should have known better. It's not so clear in the New King James Version, which I'm reading to you from tonight, but it's more clear in some other translations. Let me read to you, for example, from the... um, New Revised Standard Version. It says, A certain member of the company of the prophets said to another. In other words, the idea is, it's another of his own company. So it's not like he's just asking, it's not like he's going to an anonymous man on the street, Hi, would you strike me please? No! Oh, well then a lion's going to eat you. No, that's not it. He's going up to a fellow prophet, one who presumably should have this sensitivity to the things of God, one who should know My fellow prophet isn't going to come up and ask me to do such a weird thing unless it's from God, and at least I should do is I should pray about it and seek God about it before refusing him. And because he wouldn't seek God, because he didn't listen to the Lord at all on this, well, we have to say. I mean, the lion came out and ate him, and this doesn't seem to be a typical work here, but it just seems to be something that happened on this occasion. In any regard, verse 37, I, I like how this follows here. And he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, inflicting a wound. We're happy about this. You know, you'd hate to see this go through five or six people until he found somebody who was actually willing to hit him. Verse 38. Then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. So you get the picture here. This weird prophet who wanted somebody to hit him, he needed the injury to play act something for King Ahab uh, in the following verses. So here he's laying by the side of the road. He's got a bandage around his head. Presumably there's some blood involved, but you get the picture. All right, now verse 39. Now, as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If, if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. Well, while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Then the king of, the, of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Okay, so you understand the story here, right? The story is, I was responsible to guard this man's life. But I was unfaithful in it. You have to love the line in verse 40. While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. You know, a suitably vague description, right? Well, you know, I just had a few things to do and it kind of got in the way of me guarding this guy. And well, before I knew it, I looked up and he was gone. What do you know? 
You know, no real reason, just I was busy here and there, and oh, I let the guy escape. He was unfaithful to the job that he was given to do, and the guilty man's excuse, his only excuse, was that I was busy here and there, which was no excuse at all. He should have paid attention to the job that he had to do. I mean, listen, it's an important responsibility to guard a prisoner on the field of battle. But he didn't take the responsibility seriously. I find that this prophet's made-up story with the fictional excuse becomes real in the life of many people, especially in many ministers of the gospel. Let me read you a quote from G. Campbell Morgan on this. He says, If a man is called to preach the word and becomes busy over a hundred things other than that of his central work, and so loses the opportunity to preach, his failure is complete. That which is our God-appointed work, we must do. If we fail in that, the fact that we have been busy here and there, doing all sorts of other things, is of no avail. I wonder. I wonder if that's how it's going to be with some of us. You know, when we stand before the Lord in judgment, not judgment for heaven or hell, but judgment for reward. Judgment where we stand before Jesus Christ. And he says, I, I want to know what you did with your life. And Jesus said, you know, I had something I wanted you to do. I had a calling. I gave you gifts. I, I give you a purpose in this life. D did you do it? And we said, well, uh, I was busy here and there. That's not enough. You know, God, God has a purpose for you in this world. He has gifts, he has talents, he has calling that he's given you. The, the fictional excuse of this prophet in this play-acting story tragically becomes a reality in the lives of many people. And in the same way, when the prisoner was gone, he was gone. Even as the fictional prisoner escaped, so many opportunities escape us in the Christian life. It's gone. The prisoner's gone. You had your opportunity to fulfill your duty, but now it's gone. Sure, you were busy here and there, but you didn't do what God wanted you to do. Now, when Ahab hears this story, what's his reaction there in verse 40? He says, hey, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. You see, in the prophet's story, he was unfaithful in guarding something that was entrusted to him. And Ahab rightly judged that he should have been held responsible for it. You know, Ahab's saying, so what, you want me to whine? You want to whine to me now about the injury that you have? You know, you deserve it. You were given a trust, you were given a duty, and you were unfaithful to it. All right, now are we ready for the great finale here? Verse 41. And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king recognized him as one of the prophets. Now, right there, it tells you why he wanted to disguise himself as a soldier. If he just had his normal appearance, the king would have said, that's one of those troublesome prophets, you ride straight by. But he could only get the king's attention by disguising himself. And so you can imagine the king's horror as the guy rips off the bandage and the king, ah, it's one of those prophets that I've been avoiding. So what happens? And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction. Therefore, your life shall go for his life, and your people for his people. 
So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. God intended that Ben-Hadad should be utterly destroyed, but he also intended that it be done by the hand of the army of Israel. Now let me ask you this. Did God want Ben-Hadad judged with death? Yes. Then why didn't God just do it himself? He certainly is capable of doing it, isn't he? Yes. But God was also interested in the way that death came about, and he called Ahab and the army of Israel to execute this righteous judgment against this pagan king who had shed the blood of so many of the people of the kingdom of Israel, but Ben-Hadad, excuse me, but Ahab was more interested in making friends with Ben-Hadad than he was in doing what God wanted him to do. It's a... uh, a painful excuse or a painful experience in our Christian life, I should say, to realize that when we don't deal with things the way that they should, they come back and get us. When Saul doesn't deal with Agag, it comes back and it gets him. You know, when uh, David doesn't deal with the things he should be dealing with, it comes back and it gets him. And here King Ahab, didn't deal with Ben-Hadad the way that he should have. And now he will pay a great price for it. There's a great temptation always in our walk before God to simply be careless, to not follow through on the things that God speaks to us about to do. Maybe to do it halfway. You know, God told the Israelites to go and fight against the Syrians. And did they fight? Yes, they did. They even won a great victory. But they stopped short of the complete victory that God wanted them to have. And this is a great temptation for us. You know, we, we, we don't want to stay out of the battle completely. But on the other hand, we're oftentimes very content with something short of complete victory. That was Ahab's sin. Are you struck there by the very last sentence in the same way I am? Verse 43. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. Well, yeah, he was sullen. He was displeased. Was he repentant? No. He had the sorrow of being a sinner and knowing the consequences of his sin without having sorrow for the sin itself. And so we'll happen. Excuse me. We'll see what happens with Ahab in the last two chapters here. Um, But it's a um, a tragic thing that's going to come before him. All right, just a couple applications for us to grab away from this great chapter, 1 Kings chapter 20, before we conclude. Number one, we see how God used these anonymous prophets. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, even when you have these bright, shining lights, and maybe you feel like that sometime in your own Christian service of the Lord, you know, you think that there's bright, shining lights in God's kingdom, you know, and those are the ones that, listen... God uses the anonymous just as well. Sometimes even greater, you must admit that. So here, God uses these anonymous ones. The other thing we have to admit is that here we see in this chapter that God is the God of everywhere, of every circumstance, of every position, not just the hills, not just the valleys, but of everything. And we need to regard him as so. But the third thing we learn, and the final, is the great importance of fulfilling what God has given us to do, of finishing the race. It's not enough. To, to, to go part way and then quit 
If God has called you to do it, then you fulfill it with all of your strength. And beware of the temptation of almost finishing, of almost completing the work. I, I would say that. You, you, you would think, listen, we, we killed, what was it, 125,000 or something like that Syrians. Isn't that enough? No, because you didn't kill the one I wanted you to also. Ben-Hadad. Something for us to learn, to not stop short of the full victory that the Lord would want to give us. Lots for us to think about, to meditate on, to ask the Lord about tonight before we go to bed. So let's pray and ask him to remind us of these things. Father, that is our prayer. We are so struck at the way that you use these great servants of yours, these anonymous men of God. It shows us, Lord, that we don't have to have a big or a notable name to be used by you. We thank you, Lord, for knowing that you're the God of everywhere, not just the hills, not just the valleys, but of every place, of every circumstance, of every situation, of every life age, you are the God of it. And finally, Lord, give us a diligence. We don't want to lose having almost won the victory, having won the battles but yet failed in that last critical place. Give us diligence, Lord. Give us wisdom, but give us diligence to apply the wisdom that you give us. We thank you so much for your word and for the captain of our faith, Jesus Christ, who finished the work that you gave for him. We're so happy, so grateful for the finished work of the cross and ask that you fill us with a greater and greater appreciation of that great work for us. We pray it, Lord, in Jesus' name, thanking you for your word. Amen.